very pleased to be joined by Paul Bodner from the Rocky Mountain Institute today. Um, I was just saying to Paul before we started that I definitely feel like I need to up my game today because I'm talking with someone with just extensive experience in both policy and finance, uh, having worked at uh, Climate Change Capital, Virtus Environmental Finance, Vision Ridge Partners, and then perhaps best known, I suppose, for your work at the White House as uh, an advisor on policy, uh, all relating to the climate strategy for the Obama administration. So welcome to the Decarb Connect podcast, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. So there's so many things that we could pick on in your experience that are fascinating, but um, perhaps I'll just pick your brains briefly on a couple of things. So one one of the, the big wins, I would say, of the work that you did in the White House was formulating um, the US strategy for the Paris Climate Accord. I mean, that must have been, yeah, quite a period of time. Um, and then since then, you've done work for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You're on the board of Carbon Tracker. Just as an opening kind of general question, I, I'm kind of interested to hear how has your view of the challenge of decarbonisation and climate matured in that time? I know that's a big question, but you know, you've been through these different roles and different ways of engaging with it. What's your perspective on it now? That's a great question. Uh, and I do think that my view has changed over time, but it's also changed as the, the world's focus in addressing climate change has oscillated between policy and markets. So when I started uh, my career, the, the Kyoto Protocol had been agreed, but had not entered into force. And so that, that long sort of cycle of policymaking focused at the international level was not where the action was, but, but it was, how are we gonna implement something like the Kyoto Protocol and, and its focus on carbon markets? Um, so, so the really interesting work at that point was to create carbon markets and take advantage of some of these, these emissions trading structures and, and offset uh, opportunities that the Kyoto Protocol theoretically created, but which no one had actually tested. So that was the golden age of carbon markets in some ways. Uh, and I, like many others, was spending a lot of time in China with heavy industry trying to find the highest bang for buck emission reduction opportunities in the world and, and finance those and make them make them real. And then when the world turned its attention back towards the, the, the negotiation of a global climate agreement uh, in that period through Copenhagen and, and eventually Paris, that's where the interesting work was in some ways. So that's, that's where I decided to focus and that's the, the period that I spent in government. And now that the Paris Agreement itself is done and its detailed rulebook has been agreed and the United States will now come back into it and join every other nation. The task changes again and that's and my focus has changed again because the Paris Agreement is really a project of nations and governments really needed to complete that 25-year process of trial and error to develop a global framework for international cooperation and target setting on climate change. But now the hard work of actually doing the things to decarbonize the global economy comes into sharper focus. And, uh, and that's where uh, we need to start looking at global industries that actually cut across nations and figure out how do we add to this quite nation-centric framework of the Paris Agreement and reinforce it with a more horizontal focus 
on the way that global industries actually work, which is they transcend borders. They don't, uh, they, they, you can't sort of stack up 195 uh, nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement and expect those to automatically sum up into an efficient strategy to decarbonize a global sector like steel or chemicals or cement. So I think um, as the world has evolved in its focus, I have tried to to stay in the places where the most interesting work is, and and um, and that's been my kind of guiding principle. When we um, spoke in the preparation for this, I was kind of I was struck by something you said that um, your kind of the background in government, but also the, the work you've done, kind of examining industry, looking at industry. You kind of you use this phrase. You said that it's clear that to you that the key is confidence. It's like confidence in government with confidence in industry. That's what you know presents us with a real route forward you can have rules coming out of your ears but it's that kind of confidence although I suppose the rules generate the confidence but I, I was really struck by that as a sort of a concept yeah so if you're a national government trying to formulate a national climate target under the Paris Agreement with this so-called nationally determined contributions or NDCs then you're obviously looking at your own economy and trying to assess how fast you think that economy can make the transition to a low carbon future? And that question becomes quickly a sector by sector question. How, how can you do it for electricity? How can you do it for transportation, heavy industry, land use? And so ultimately, um, the upper bounds of ambition for a national government under the Paris Agreement are partly set by political considerations, but partly they are set by the confidence that a government has at the rate of change that it can drive, which in turn is a function of what it's hearing from those industries and sectors about what's possible. Uh, on the other side of the ledger, you have these global industries, you know, through the horizontal lens, and they are being asked to undertake an intentional transformation away from high carbon production to low carbon production. And they often look to the policy world for the signals on, on when to do that and how to do that. So each of these two very important stakeholders in the decarbonization process is looking at the other. The policy world is looking at industry and what are the limits to progress there. And industry is looking at governments and saying, well, are you going to force us to do this? Or how fast are we supposed to go? And confidence is a good word to describe the, the, the positive feedback dynamic you can create when, when industry does more than fold its arms and wait for policy to tell it what to do. Um, and because if, if industry and the industrial ecosystems that really drive the decisions of corporates on what sort of technology choices they make are pushing to go low carbon, and they're demonstrating progress in doing that, that will have a positive effect on national governments and what they feel confident in putting forward under the Paris Agreement, and then vice versa. So you end up in a positive feedback loop um, that ultimately is what we need in order to drive progress fast enough. Let's sort of bring that in then to, to what we decided we would talk about as the main focus. So obviously at Rocky Mountain Institute, one of the big pieces of work over the last few years has been the Mission Possible platform, which is obviously in the process of shifting to Mission Possible partnership, which will have been 
released uh, in, at the uh, World Economic Forum meeting by the time this podcast is, is played. So tell me a little bit about the origins of that, the kind of Mission Possible platform, and what is the work that RMI does through that that, that really lends itself to this discussion of confidence and, and how we balance out what's needed from both government and from industry. And then we'll talk a little more about that shift at uh, rebirth or reimagination that it's gone through to go into the Mission Possible partnership. Rocky Mountain Institute has been working for almost 40 years on business-led, market-based approaches to the clean energy transition. And we have long worked with heavy industry and, and global sectors, whether they are trucking or aviation or shipping or mining, steels, cement. Uh, but but mission, the Mission Possible platform was actually created by the World Economic Forum and uh, the Energy Transitions Commission. And it grew, out, it grew out of a report that we did contribute to called Mission Possible, which basically made the case that the sectors that we call hard to abate sometimes are actually not some sort of impossible black box. Uh, we, we know what it will take to transform those sectors into zero carbon sectors, and here's how we need to do it. So it was a real breakthrough piece of analysis um, that led to the creation of this platform that sits between the World Economic Forum and the Energy Transitions Commission that identified seven sectors that together account for 30% of global emissions and decided to start the difficult work of actually convening these sectors to help them re-engineer themselves for this transition. And those seven sectors are cement, steel, chemicals, and aluminum, and shipping, trucking, and aviation. Those seven sectors, again, comprising 30% of global emissions, will by themselves blow through the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees by 2030 if we don't help them move off their business as usual trajectories. So although uh, people working on climate often gravitate towards work in the power sector or in transportation, personal transportation, personal mobility, which are vital and which account for, you know, each of them accounts for a larger percentage of the of global emissions or national emissions um, than, than any of the seven sectors I mentioned do individually, we're actually making faster progress today in driving decarbonization of power or light-duty vehicles than we are of these heavy industry or, or heavy transport sectors. And those sectors have very long capital uh, uh, investment lifetimes. So in the chemicals industry, if we're, if we're focused on, let's say, a 2030 timeframe for reducing global emissions by half, for the chemicals industry, that is one cycle of capital investment. We have one cycle left to influence in that whole time. Aircraft, similarly, to design aircraft takes years, decades. Um, Re-engineering re huge ships, right, for, for, for long-haul transport on the high seas takes many years. So uh, these sectors are vital to focus on right now because they can be decarbonized, 
but the the nature of the the capital asset investment cycles means that you've got to engage right now if you want to see progress by 2030 and that's what the mission possible platform uh, began doing and and very very ably so however uh, I think many others who have started working on the decarbonization of these industries have realized that it's time to join forces and elevate the, the sectoral agenda in, in the whole story of global climate action, almost to the level of nations, because only, only that twin focus on national action and cross-border industri industry action together can drive progress fast enough. Uh, to integrate the work of these organizations, including RMI and, and, and many others that work on this, the, the, the World We Mean Business, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, um, Ceres, and, and others that are part of this new mission possible partnership. And uh, most importantly, to orchestrate in a much more structured way than even the Mission Possible platform set out to do, net zero industry platforms and we can talk about what those what those look like but in some sense we've embarked now in this new phase on trying to create the definitive global sector decarbonization effort that is more than just a collection of initiatives doing good things in roughly the same space but a much more clearly structured effort that takes advantage of some important dynamics that we're seeing right now, including the fact that industries themselves are, industrial corporates are getting more into uh, climate action, but the other actors in their ecosystems that matter to them, that influence their behavior and their technology choices, their investments, are all increasingly also focused on net zero. So let's say you're a steel company and you're under pressure from the world to explore green steel. Uh, and uh, so what will drive your decisions ultimately about what you invest in, how fast you make that transition and how hard you try? Well, sure, it partly depends on the regulatory environment you face. But again, you're, you might be operating in 50 markets. What else influences your decisions? Well, your shareholders do. What are they pushing you to do? And your shareholders, if you're a publicly traded company, are, are often represented by asset managers or pension funds. Um, they are increasingly organizing themselves around the net zero imperative and putting pressure on steel companies. Then you've got customers of steel, the auto industry, the construction industry. And the buyers of steel are, are organizing themselves to put pressure on the steel industry to say, we want to procure green steel. We understand it's going to take time, but we're going to set standards that that sort of crank down the, the CO2 emissions per ton of steel. And we want you to go do that, please, steel companies. And then you have um, uh, regulators, of course, doing it. So all of these players form the ecosystem that influences the decisions of steel companies. The same thing is true in cement or shipping or aviation or chemicals. And so what we have an opportunity to do now is to organize those forces around the creation of a net zero roadmap for an industry that is more than just a research paper or a theoretical exercise but it's something that the sector adopts and agrees to work towards. 
what we've seen in the shipping sector is that uh, when you have a target that is a generally agreed target in in the industry and the pathways to get from where we are today to that target over time, it's possible to create very specific metrics and benchmarks that allow these stakeholders to adopt commitments that make the achievement of that pathway a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let me let me dive in there because I, I think this this is a really interesting part of part of this to me, which is you know so Decal Connect and my team's experiences. We we tend to hear we talk to individual com- companies within a sector, and we will hear from them that they're excited about X Y Z project, but they don't think much else is happening in their industry. Or in some of the industries, they might be a bit aware of other things that are happening, not really, and definitely low awareness of what is happening in other similar sectors. So that the purpose of this massive piece of organizational work is is to kind of even just take a massive step up from that and to say okay all of you people that are working away in these little pinpricks of holes in your businesses driving things forward there are a there are more of you b here they are c here are the mechanisms that can actually turn this into a coherent move forward that's the that's the kind of the goal um so yes on the shipping point um i know when we talked about this before this was interesting so in shipping the idea that you're building on from, as it were, was this link between uh, the improvement of CO2 per, well, I guess in, in that case, it was per mile, was it? Or, you know, the kind of the distance traveled and you were looking at the link between that and uh, finance and, and other kind of structures that supported that industry moving forward. So for other industries, it would be perhaps linking finance and investment uh, and again, other supports to the cost. Is it the cost per ton of CO2 or is it the amount of CO2 emitted per ton of product? That was one of the things I wasn't quite sure about. So it's it's more the latter. So it, the the in the case of shipping, because a target had been negotiated under the auspices of the International Maritime Organization and companies had a high amount of certainty about how, what it would take to get from where they were right now to that target, um, it was possible to set a metric, which in the case of shipping is grams of CO2 per ton nautical mile. In other words, how much carbon is being emitted to, to provide the service that the shipping industry provides, which is to move a unit of goods, a unit of distance. And that metric is to decline over time by about 85%, I think, between now and 2050. And if you're a bank lending, if you're a bank financing ships in that sector, then you can simply adopt that metric as your climate alignment standard and say, our portfolio as a bank, our shipping desk, our portfolio of senior shipping debt will comply with this declining carbon intensity over time, which means that if we decide to adopt that standard, there will be increasingly uh, uh, cases where we will not finance inefficient ships. And over time, our portfolio of ships that we finance needs to shift to highly efficient alternative fuel ships. And the market knows that 
because we've we've got this long-term framework going out all the way to 2050, which might get more stringent, but it won't get less stringent. And so it affects the cost of capital for for ship owners, and it affects the avail ultimately the availability of capital to build certain ships. And so for other sectors, uh, the, the the metrics need to be agreed. It's 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 in some ways shipping is the easiest sector because it has a global regulator, this UN agency, and because it's easy to express the the carbon performance standard in terms of the service provided by the shipping industry. If you think about something like steel, the easiest way to do it would be to say, you know, here's how many tons of CO2 per ton of steel produced. It's harder to express it in terms of a service, even though it would probably be preferable to do that. You'd have to have some sort of weird standard like structural, you know, the structural service provided by steel or cement. Um, and that's going to be harder. But uh, but it is something that that people are working on right now. So, I mean, the, the mind boggles someone like me who's obviously ne I've never operated at that kind of uh, global stage level. Like how do you even bring those parties to the table when, again, from my perspective, when I'm looking at hundreds of companies divided into sectors with all of the kind of dissonance between what they're each trying to do and achieve? Like, how how do you even build that uh, platform that 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 route forward what what's you mentioned that in shipping they have the imo this global regulatory body how do you do it in a sector that doesn't have that what what's the path for that well first as a problem solving exercise you just have to decide what level you want to operate at and and of course most people operate at the individual company level and they have a business and they see things or don't see things as you exactly as you said but if you if you zoom back out to the 30,000 foot level, if you like to say here, uh, then you notice certain things and you notice that there is quite a, lot of, quite a lot of activity which is very well aligned, but needs to be organized. And, and so that is the level that we're trying to operate at. And because what we see, as I said earlier, is that the forces necessary to create flywheels of decarbonization in these individual sectors are now there. And they just need to be orchestrated in a certain configuration and with a very clear theory of change to set those flywheels spinning. Now, as you say, it's somewhat easier when you have a global regulator like the IMO for shipping or the International Civil Aviation Organization for aviation and for there is no global regulator or easy to find global forum for having this conversation uh, for steel or chemicals or cement uh, or trucking so you have to create one you have to create one that has the same uh, legitimacy credibility technical expertise as an IMO does for shipping so we are we are doing something which is akin to creating a synthetic regulator as a platform for having this conversation. But uh, that's not as hard as it sounds if you can get the right people around the table, if you can get them to agree on what they're trying to accomplish and you give them the support, technical, convening, facilitation, analytical, political, to do it, to succeed. So absolutely what we're trying to do here is has a high degree of difficulty 
but it also harnesses very real forces for change that we think are there to be to be animated yeah i mean there's definitely no shortage of there's no shortage of will which perhaps might surprise people who sit outside of industrial uh, sectors looking in because you know when you read about it in the media it's as though none of these companies are doing anything there's clearly that's not true there is plenty of work going on plenty of energy and i arguably as i noted before i i feel like even in the last year there's been this huge shift in the energy and the types of conversations that we're seeing in companies so i think clearly that's there but as you say it needs it needs organizing it needs orchestrating it needs bringing together so that that kind of momentum can gain its next level of energy well exactly and this is what i think the world economic forum discovered when it started to set up these sector specific platforms or, or undertakings under the Mission Possible platform, the first incarnation of this collective effort, which is there were so many CEOs at the CEO level in these industries, so many CEOs that were really wanting to move forward and wanting to do bold things, but they couldn't do it alone. They needed these other players to be organized around them to make it happen, both in terms of giving them the confidence to set a pathway to zero and to undertake the actions necessary to actually do that, right? So if, if you are just a, a CEO in, a tr in the trucking industry or the, or the cement industry, you need to see your banks engaged. You need to see your shareholders supported. You need to see your customers saying they're willing to procure the products that you're going to be generating through these technology changes. And that is what we're trying trying to do here but it is built on this foundation as you say of of of, of an increasing general interest and commitment to do something but but often you know like i want to do something what do i do uh, okay well it, it it's complicated so let, let me take care of the complicated part i want to do something what do i do but i don't want to decimate my business in the process which is also what a lot of those industries would say isn't it so so that was that you've described the kind of the the original Mark One version of the Mission Possible platform. So, what what's coming next? What's next in its evolution? So, what's coming next is the uh, is that we're taking these nascent platforms in these seven areas, and with a series of amazing partners, uh, we're turning each into a net zero sector transformation platform that does have the right configuration of actors around the table committed to in good faith charting a course to net zero for that sector uh, we are going to then facilitate what is effectively a negotiation among those stakeholders sector by sector so there's seven different platforms uh, a negotiation on how to get to net zero and that's going to be informed by lots of great analytical work that's been done through initiatives like the Science-Based Targets Initiative, uh, the IEA's work on technology roadmaps, and many other efforts that have tried to map out the pathway to net zero, either from a science basis or from a technology basis or from other, you know, from other perspectives. But um, those have not yet been brought together into a single conversation where industry and its stakeholders need to need to make some choices. And 
this is going to be hard, right? Making a complete transformation to net zero by 2050 in 30 years is very, very challenging. And it can only be accomplished through the concerted efforts of all of those stakeholders around that table, an industry, its customers, its suppliers, its regulators, its capital providers. Um, and so in as much as they are able to agree on a particular pathway that mirrors the kind of very specific quantitative benchmark that we spoke about for shipping, then as the next step, uh, you have the climate standard on which you can hook individual stakeholder commitments because you know where you want to go at that point where right? you have that pathway you, you have it in numbers you have it in metrics and then you then you can say if you're a bank as they did in shipping under the poseidon principles we're going to hook our lending policies onto that benchmark or if you are a shareholder or an asset manager you can say we're going to hook our shareholder activism agenda against the attainment of that benchmark over time, or we're going to hook our investment divestment decisions onto whether companies are or are not on that pathway. If you are government, you can hook your regulatory agenda onto that pathway or your research and development dollar spending priorities on that agenda. And of course, if you're a customer, you can hook your procurement standards against that benchmark. And then of course, if you're an industrial corporate, you can hook your strategy against that benchmark. Because that benchmark may just be a series of numbers over time, but it's rooted in a deep discussion about technology pathways that led to that number. And so people understand things about, okay, if we're gonna get to that benchmark by X year, if, if steel is gonna be this green in 2025 and this green in 2030, Underlying those numbers are assumptions about the commercialization of green hydrogen uh, many and many other things that have been discussed. It's not just some theoretical number that said, oh, that would be good. Let's do that. So it takes all of that to make it true. You know, just agreeing on a number doesn't make it so. What makes it so is having all of those that have influence over the outcomes of an industry's technology decisions and investment decisions aligning themselves around that single vision. And of course, those like RMI that work in this space that are facilitative rather than owners of assets or investors in assets need to continue to create the supporting ecosystem of methodologies and standards and facilitative tools to help support a sector on its journey. That's what the Mission Possible Partnership is going to be doing. So 2021 into 2022, what, what might people expect to see or hear like of the kind of, I don't know, the kind of key steps forward from that, from this point, what, what might they expect to, yeah, to see or hear happening? Well, what we're talking about here is a, a system level change. So it, it, it's, it's obviously a big undertaking and it will take several years in the case of each sector platform to go through that process that I've described. But we're doing it at a time when the, the, the broader set of global stakeholders focused on climate action, whether it's Greta Thunberg or Joe Biden or uh, you know, a corporate leader or, or a Chinese state-owned enterprise in one of these sectors, where, where everybody is going through a shift from a mentality of climate negotiations being the game in town globally to climate action. And 
one of the key milestones in that shift will be the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow in November 2021, COP26. So COP26 will be a pretty important moment where the, we're making a shift from the first 25 COPs, which tended to be about governments negotiating climate agreement, to everything we do from here on in, which is about organizing action to meet those targets. And this effort that we're undertaking in the Mission Possible Partnership can serve as an example of what it looks like to really think big and, and try to re-engineer a whole big piece of the puzzle on climate action and to elevate sectors so, 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 that, so that people who go to a COP, for, for your listeners who have gone to COPs, they may, they may know that when you go to a COP, you have the negotiations and then you have everything else as a side event. So no matter how big a bang is being announced or discussed at the COP in the real economy, it's treated as a side event. And that needs, that's going to be changing over time. And what we're doing with sectors is, is uh, it can be a kind of crown jewel of the content that, that shows the world what it means to shift one's focus from negotiations to actually doing stuff. So I think at the COP, you'll see uh, several of the sectors that I mentioned coming forward to demonstrate this completely new model of climate action at a, at a cross-cutting industrial level. And, and we wanna showcase that. So people, not just they don't just see happy announcements in a given sector, but they see a new model. I think that's a really interesting description of the shift from negotiation phase into action phase, which maybe has felt apparent to people that were involved in those COPs that that was the the path, but probably not always apparent actually, again, from the outside looking in. So that, that feels like a really, that feels like a powerful use of 2021, doesn't it? After quite a disruptive and challenging on all kinds of levels, 2020, if 2021 is the year that actually roadmap turns to action, that uh, negotiation turns to action, that, that already kind of amplifies on from the energy we felt building this year. I think that's an yeah, exciting, exciting story for 2021, certainly. Well, um, Paul, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I, um, yeah, I really felt it was an incredible privilege to be able to get any of your time. So um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for everything that you're doing to educate people about this agenda, to help them engage in it. This is a project without parallel in human history to intentionally re-engineer one of the most important foundations of our global economy, right? Our global economy is always changing, the advent of the internet and smartphones and various technologies and trends. But we've never, as a whole planet, tried to do something in a specific time frame with such wide ranging consequences across sectors. And uh, it's a really exciting and daunting thing to be involved with. So thank you for your contributions to that as well. Any small part is a great part to be able to play. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Alan.